Welcome to the Hammer Factor 37 prologue. Um, in this episode, Shane Benedict subbed in for John Weld as he is still overseas. Also, due to a scheduling conflict, I had to record the Kim Fontany interview uh, separately, so I inserted that after the mid-show sponsor. Um, enjoy episode 37, the Freestyle Edition. Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. Welcome to Hammer Factor 37, the freestyle edition. My name is John Grace, your host, and my co-host today on the show, North Fork champion, policy director for the Outdoor Alliance, and poker maverick, Lewis Geltman. As well, on the show this week, we have Whitewater Legend, co-founder of Liquid Logic Kayaks, and head design at Big Adventures. Welcome to the show uh, in Weld's Place, Shane Benedict. What's up, fellas? Um, uh, sorry I won't be as witty and cynical as Mr. Weld. Yeah, man, you got some you got some big shoes to fill. I feel like when Gitto was on, he only had to be better than me, which is an easy task. But <laughs> <laughs> filling, filling the John Weld chair is a way behind the April. <laughs> Weld can't join us this week. He is still in, uh, in Asia, but he made sure to let us know we were douchebags for thinking that this was a good recording time and that it was 2.15 in the morning where he was at. <laughs> <laughs> Genital work. Sorry, we haven't all mastered the, the Asheville to China time change. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis, have you ever entered a freestyle competition or a rodeo per se? I did my share of Potomac Whitewater Festival rodeos when I was a young lad. Um, and I, I went to the Ottawa rodeo in 1996. I had a, I had a nice, I had a nice fresh, like, like one of the first out of the mold wave sport kinetics. I remember, uh, I don't remember. You must have been there, Shane. I remember seeing like Bob McDonough up there and like one of the very first whippets. That is still like a classic kayak in my yep. estimation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there for sure. That was on the regular tour. There's like me and Ryan Bond and Scott McCluskey cruising around up there, and we we had zero tolerance for waiting in line. <laughs> and so we would go up there and we would take like one ride and then we would just spend the rest of the day, like out in the rest of the river, like or driving around raising hell and then, you know, showed up for the actual competition. And I, I recall it not going particularly well for me, but I don't, I don't remember too many of the details. <laughs> Those were in the, in the glory days when, when being an okay slow racer qualified you immediately to like get a free rodeo boat and get sent to rodeos. And I was wondering how that happened. And then when Shane posted that video of the 93 Rodeo Worlds where EJ won and who EJ at the time was strictly a slalom paddler and Shipley was second. And I was like, oh, yeah, like that makes sense why that might have been like a reasonable reasonable connection at that time. <laughs> yep. You know, I can't wait, Shane, to hear some of the stories from that 93 uh, Rodeo and kind of how that sport, how you got into that sport, how it evolved. You were, you designed many boats. Um, 
that were really kind of game changers through that evolution. But before we get into that, I want to give a huge shout out to our top of the show sponsor, Canoe and Kayak. Canoe and Kayak has been leading the paddle sports media hustle for 45 years, reaching an unprecedented audience of nearly a half million people. With in-depth articles, like the one that I'm going to reference today, it's an opinion piece. Um, It's called Trump's Attack on Public Lands Just Got Personal. Um, Very good way. There is no more compelling way to get your paddle sports beta than Canoe and Kayak. Check them out at canoekayak.com. Lewis, did you have a chance to read that article? I did. Should we? Uh, do you want to continue our, our freestyle conversation for a sec, or should we? You want to talk about that article? Uh, let's go ahead and get a little gloom and doom, and then uh, and then we'll jump back into the freestyle. So, as we talked about last week, I mentioned that I thought you know that it sounded like Monday Trump was going to Utah to announce these rollbacks of two national monuments, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante. And that did, in fact, happen on Monday. Uh, Trump flew out there, made a speech about, you know, returning control of these places to the locals, which is, like, just totally disingenuous, and rolled back these national monument protections onto really important places. Uh, Bears Ears was... so. Let me just back up for a second and explain how national monuments work, if that would be helpful. So all of this, you know, there's this all gets caught up in this idea about whether states or the federal government should be controlling these places. And these are existing nationally owned public lands, like all the entire landscape that is in dispute here. These are places that we all own collectively and are managed by the uh, federal government, by you know BLM and the Forest Service. These places have never belonged to the state of Utah. You know, there's all this rhetoric about giving land back to the states. To say giving it back is a total misnomer because it was never theirs to begin with. And when all these states out west entered the, uh, you know, entered the union, they expressly disclaimed any rights to national public lands. So just to set that aside, so this dispute is all about public lands should be managed and under this law the antiquities act which was passed by or was signed by teddy roosevelt uh 110 years ago the president has the authority to designate existing public lands like nationally owned public lands as national monuments based on their like value as antiquities or scientific value or you know quite a list of, of reasons that a president can say this is an important place and we should protect it and so in 1996, President Clinton uh, designated Grand Staircase Escalante as a national monument. You know, previous to that, I think it was, I think it's Forest Service land, some of it's BLM. Um, and so it, you know, it puts some more protections on these places to, you know, keep these wild places to protect these like archaeological and cultural values. These are like super important places for Native American tribes down there. And at the end of the Obama administration, President Obama designated Bears Ears as a national monument. And the reason that happened right at the end of his presidency is that he'd given the Utah congressional delegation years to try to work out some sort of Utah-driven solution to how we're going to protect these places in a meaningful way. And there was a ton of agreement from the Utah congressional delegation and the governor 
everybody in Utah that this place needed some form of protection. And when they were unable to move their bill to protect this place through Congress, President Obama said, okay, I'm going to step in here and we're going to establish these protections using my authority under the Antiquities Act. So this is not something that Obama did like, like walking out the door. This is something that had been in the works for a long time. And he wanted to give the Utah uh, legislators every opportunity to, you know, establish this protection themselves in whatever way made sense to them. So Trump goes out on Monday with his boy, Ryan Zinke, and when he announces that he's rolling back these protections, he's going to reduce the size of the Bears Ears National Monument by 85%. Grand Staircase Escalante is getting split up into three units and reduced in area by about half. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about executive authority and overreach and things like that. But what this is really about is opening these places up to extractive industry. And you can look at the the map for where there are potential oil and gas leases around Bears Ears, and it's like they're just cleaving the monument back to where the oil and gas leases are. Grand Staircase Escalante, there's there's coal, and to me, I mean, I just cannot imagine anything more uh, appalling than to turn Grand Staircase Escalante into a coal mine. You know, as soon as Trump announced this, a bunch of the the tribes who've been taking the lead on protecting these places down there, they filed lawsuits. Our member organization, the Access Fund, is uh, has filed suit earlier this week against the Trump administration. I think they're on the same uh, lawsuit as Patagonia. So, you know, what President Trump is trying to do here, rolling back these existing protections, is... It's pretty, it's unprecedented in, I think in the thirties, Franklin Roosevelt rolled back some protections on um, what's now Olympic National Park that was originally designated as a monument before it became a national park. But that was, it had a lot to do with sort of like timber production for the uh, war effort in World War II and nobody challenged that. And then in the 70s, there was a law passed called uh, the Federal Land Policy Management Act, FLIPMA, that seems to make very clear that the president doesn't have the authority to scale back monuments. Presidents can designate them, but they can't revoke them. Congress can revoke a national monument. They can change the status of these places, but the president can't. You know, the president can protect, but the president can't unprotect it unilaterally. It's just sort of the default setting has changed. And if you want to, make another change it has to be changed by congress and so that's what all these lawsuits are are going to be principally based on is this idea that that you know flipma closed off any ability that the president may or may not have had previous to that to modify national monuments lewis did you have a chance to read that article yeah so i mean i I guess we should just to mention this article that we're jumping off from that we haven't really touched on yet. There's a really cool article in Canoe Kayak by Aaron Schmidt with a bunch of cool photography. The uh, San Juan River, which is a pretty classic, like class two Southwestern float trip is the Southern border for the Bears Ears National Monument. Tons of cool archeological sites, you know, opportunities to see like, you know, cave art and ruins and things like that. Um, so I thought it was really sweet. Actually, once you sent me that, I just sent it to our, our communications director to get that up on OA's social media. Um, so yeah, so, you know, if, if 
the courts were to decide that what Trump had done was legal, I mean, he's not going to stop there. He, you know, Zinke's report recommending changes to monuments, it already recommends, it recommends management changes in a bunch of monuments, but it recommends scaling back the boundaries on Cascade Siskiyou down in Southern Oregon. It's like down on the Southwest coast. Uh, like I think I'm not exactly sure what's in and what's out of the boundaries on Cascade Siskiyou, but like the Chetco is in that area, the Illinois, it's close to the Rogue. It goes down into, into California, kind of in that, I don't know, that Northern California zone. Um, so, you know, these guys want to do more of this and it's, you know, these are things, there are categories of protections that we think of as being permanent, right? Like if you designate someone, some places wilderness, it should be wilderness forever. If you create a national park, the idea is that it's going to be a national park forever. And, you know, the same is true with national monuments and to, you know, to embrace this idea that it all just exists at the whim of whoever's the president you know, that's, that's disconcerting. It's like these places are not meant to be saved and protected and managed four years at a time. And they're meant to be set aside permanently for these conservation values. I also read in there that in as little as 60 days, I think that um, oil and gas leases could be uh, bid on. Is that, is that something we're seeing? I mean, do, do we not have to wait for the lawsuit to play out? Um. So for oil and gas leasing, there's a lease sale and that's where they auction off sort of the right to propose development in these, these areas. And so then, you know, like if you buy an oil and gas lease through one of these auctions, you still have to do the environmental analysis and, you know, demonstrate that this place is like commercially viable. Like it doesn't, uh, just because a, a, an area gets leased doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get developed. And right now there's, you know, a massive amount of oil and gas leases in the West that are owned by these energy companies, but are not developed. And so it's sort of like a speculative play. I think a lot of times the people who buy these leases aren't necessarily the ones who actually go about developing them. And it's like, that's, you know, to me, that's a part of what's so ridiculous about this whole thing is that there's... You know, the idea that these places are closed off to development and we should develop everywhere. It's like, why don't we start with the leases that, that are already out there? You know, how many, how many of these things do people need to hold and just put this uncertainty of extractive development, like hold that over the people who are, you know, outfitter guides who are working in the recreation economy or the people who just want to see these places protected. It's like, let's not have this, this uncertainty that's all just speculatively driven, you know? Well, it's crazy all around. It's crazy we mentioned it, um, the the rumor of it last week on the show, and here it's a reality. And Lewis, what do we do? What's uh, what's uh, what's our what's our uh, what's our direct action we can take? Well, uh, you know, support access funds. They're definitely trying to raise money right now to finance this litigation. Litigating things is expensive. Uh, you know, those guys have our community's interest at heart and it's, it's sweet that they're, they're taking this on. Um, we're looking at ways to kind of support that litigation. Our, I was, was meeting with, with our lawyers in DC today to see, you know, what role we might play in this. I don't think that outdoor Alliance is necessarily going to be a party in a litigation, but we're going to 
you know, do everything we can to be supportive of the organizations that are challenging us in court. Um, I think writing to your members of Congress and just expressing your outrage about what's happening here is, is totally appropriate. It, it's important that there's a political cost attached to this, right? Like there are a lot of things that members of Congress can do to, to fight this, to make life difficult for Trump and thank you on public lands issues and letting them know that their constituents care about this issue. And this is something that they want to devote. You want them to devote their energy and political capital to fighting is, is important. We have uh, a bunch of resources up on our website right now. OutdoorAlliance.org, check it out. Uh, we have a bunch of cool GIS stuff. We have a, a really badass GIS guy who's based in Asheville, actually. This guy, Levi, is a mountain biker down there. He uh, Levi Rose? I know Levi Rose. Levi Rose, uh, Levi Rose was in the green race this year, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, he's a good dude. Um, he's just been, like, crushing it with the maps. We have... We have basically like the only comprehensive maps of kind of like the recreational resources in those zones, just like where the paddling is, where the climbing is, what canyoneering is, where the hiking trails are, where the mountain biking is. So like if you want to, you know, check out some maps, see what's uh you know, what we're what we're fighting for down there, go go check it out, outdoorlines.org. Sweet, Lewis. Thanks for that. Is where can I find um where can I find a link to donate to that access fund site? Is it, uh, I'll throw 20 bucks at them. Nice. Yeah. I think that's on access funds website, which I believe is accessfund.org. access fund for you guys who don't know is basically like the, the climbers version of American whitewater. One of our, our founding members. As always, Lewis, thanks for that. Super good stuff. And you were pretty chipper this episode, the new chipper Lewis. I like it. <laughs> that's the most chipper update we're we're in trouble man i gotta work on it anyway Lewis, i thought it was really chipper um, before we move into some viewer mail here i want to give a shout out to our mid-show sponsor kaleva this is the 10th year of the alsaseca race the steep creek race in mexico on the legendary roadside section of the alsaseca with over 20 drops and waterfalls you can train for a week learning the lines with Tom McEwen and Steve-O preparing for the race day on January 23rd. There are two race courses, the short race open to everyone and the long race, including the infamous Class 5 S-Turn. Kaleva is proud to be a sponsor of the best creek race in Mexico. Steve-O's heard Southeast boys say it's better than the green race. wonder what Southeast boys he's talking about. The eight-day trip is based out of the Mexican run... Uh, Vintarec, hang out with paddlers from all over the world, enjoy homemade Mexican cooking. Their cervezas are cold as well. Alsaseca Race Week starts January 6th through the 14th, so mark that on your calendar. You can join us for a post-Christmas Class 3 Plus Deep Canyons trip or stay a week after the Alsaseca Race for the advanced Class 4 Plus trip with the Zone Dog. Check out the website at C-A-L-L-E-V-A dot org slash Kayak Mexico. And Hammer Factor Nation, don't forget to type in your Hammer Factor promo code at registration. Save $100. All you got to do is type in Hammer Factor. When you register, bam, $100. $100. Big thanks to those guys. I feel like Weld and I made a lot about how you were going to be uh... – you know, sleeping in a gravel parking lot when you go down there with Tom and you might get some of that, but 
staying at Aventurek is awesome. Like the food there is so good. It's such a pleasant place to hang out. Okay, let's start out a little viewer mail here. This comes from um, Facebook. Um, this is Andrew Pallum. Andrew says, previously, Lewis mentioned the disdain for Sickline's self-appointed moniker of World Championships. I was wondering what Lewis thinks the World Championships of Extreme Racing should look like. Should it be a series, a rotating course, a whole new event, or does the race have the gravitas to permanently be the stage for the World Championship? Or is a Worlds for Creek Racing even possible to do right, or even a good idea? Thanks in advance for your answer. As well, after... As well, after listening to episode 36, I'm now convinced a Tom McEwen interview must be done. All right. Hat tip to Aaron. Andrew Pallum. Thanks for that, Andrew. I mean, I don't mean to be so negative about Sickline all the time. I think it, it looks like a rad event. I think it's super cool what they're doing over there. I do believe that for something to actually be a world championship, you can't just have it on the same rapid over and over and over again, right? I mean, there's so many things that there's so many different skills that make up kayaking and there's so many different things that make up racing even. And to say that it's just going to be the exact same rapid over and over and over again. I mean, there's no other sport that does that, right? Like if, you know, the freestyle world, like it travels all around the world, the slalom world, it travels all around the world. I mean, I don't think it necessarily has to be a whole new event. You could say like this year, the green race is the world championship. Next year, the North fork is the world championship. Next year, Voss is the world championship. But just saying, you know, the guy who's figured out this 200-yard section of Class 4 the best is the, the world champion, I don't know, it's silly. What do you think, Shane? Do you have, a, do you have an opinion on this? Um, I, I would have to agree with that for sure. I mean, we had, actually, it was funny. At, at one of the Freestyle World Championships, they had an event they called the World Championships of Extreme Racing also. And it was on, I don't even remember the creek. It was a little creek off the side. I've got a, I've got a trophy for my third place there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for that, Lewis. I think that answers Andrew's question. Um, get some, uh, move that thing around. Let's, uh, let's move it to some other events. The green race will be happy to host it one year. Um, Moving on, Nick M. This comes at us from a good old-fashioned email. Um, Hi, Hammer Factor. I'm an avid whitewater paddler, paddler hailing from the Cheat, Tigert, and Yawk areas. I'm currently working a soul-crushing job as an engineer, although my family approval rating is much higher than when I was a dirtbag paddler. And I really have a passion for paddling and for, above all, attempting to create media of still photography and videography. I would really like to make a move into working in the outdoor industry creating films. My passion lies with creating a film of kayaking akin to A View from a Blue Moon, That's It and That's All, and The Art of the Flight, or The Art of the Flight. My question to you all, especially John Grace, as I've heard on the podcast that you run a media company, is how is the best way to go about this? I don't have any formal training in the realm as I spent my college days studying about circuits and how magic electrons flow through different material. Is going to film school worth my time? Do I need formal training to land one of these jobs? I would really prefer to land a job and learn on the job as I'm a great hands learner. Motivated adventure and there is no challenge I have found yet I was not willing to undertake. 
Shout out to John Weld for the amazing gear you and Karen make, and the fact that I was in Morgantown and could swing by and pick it up on the front porch was great. Also, I greatly enjoy the podcast and all the knowledge I am learning about the paddling industry and all the outdoor preservation info that Lewis dispenses at the beginning of each podcast. Thanks for your time, and as always, peace and good lines. Nick. Well, those are great movies you listed. Um, Any kind of schooling, I'll just jump right into it. Any kind of schooling is good. I know I never went to film school. I actually studied biology in school and went and worked for a group of radio and TV stations after college. And, uh, so I could be closer to whitewater and the company I worked for South central communications. Um, let me back up. So any kind of schooling is good. So people I know who've went to film school have learned a lot. They've really, a lot of people have learned in film school if they really wanted to do film. Um, because sometimes the idea of something is a little bit more appetizing and more glamorous than actually doing it. And I think video and film is a lot like that. But just to tell you how I got into it, I worked for a, a group of uh, TV and radio stations. I was just help in the engineering department. I was pulling wires and clipping, cutting, and then I started doing promotions and other things within the organization. And then they bought... They actually uh, put on the first high-definition broadcast televi- uh, television station in the U.S. And there was one in Johnson City and one in Knoxville, where I was living and working at the time. And they got this programming, this like CW Network and Andy Griffith Show and all these kind of old shows that no one else wanted and they kind of bundled them into a package and and got some programming and they started to get some numbers, some ratings, some Nielsen's rating numbers. So the, you know, the salesmen went out and they're like, look, we got this many people watching it. You know, you should advertise. They could not sell a anything, you know, and I didn't know anything about the business end of it or anything like that at that point. But one of the mentors who worked there, who, who was one of my mentors, I would say one of my mentors, even though I think he was an unwitting mentor, um, was like, you know what, John, you're going to start on Friday nights recording high school football games, bringing them back. We're going to get the best matchup. You're going to bring them back, stay up till three in the morning, uploading them into the system, and then they're going to run three times a day. Well, I started doing that, and after like the second or third show, we got literally no ratings for the work that I was doing. It was like a huge bomb. But all of a sudden, people started calling the station wanting to advertise on the football games. And what it was is someone who had uh, you know, their son out there playing on the field and he owned the local car dealership. All of a sudden, he wanted to be an advertiser on that. And all these local businesses and whatnot who's family was out there in the field, all of a sudden they wanted to be involved and be a part of it. And it turned into the highest, um, grossing show that they did. Um, anyway, I left there and the long story short is we got there just by starting, just by doing it. We didn't throw our, you know, nobody quit their day job or whatever, but we took this chance and it turned out that it worked and that sent into a spiral of things going on forever. So my advice, my advice to you is to start with something obtainable, 
The Art of Flight may not be what you want to be looking at as your first project, um, but start doing it. Produce some things. Write a storyboard. Try and produce it, and then go from there. That that would be my best advice. Get started. I think that's good advice, man. I think it's like that with anything. It's like you just got to start. Like, you know, if you're passionate about this, start making your own kayak movies. Just like take the footage you have and start working on it and find guys who are doing this professionally and work for free or like work for peanuts and you'll meet people and find opportunities. And, you know, it's the same thing with, with anything, you know, it's like if you want to do, you know, public land stuff, it's like go volunteer for American Whitewater and you'll meet people and learn how things work. And that's just, that's how you got to start. But I'm sure it's a lot harder when you, you know, have a full-time job and a family and stuff. It's hard to, you know, I think that applies to anything, you know, you can definitely freeze yourself up trying to make art of flight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty daunting task. Starting out, just starting out, just pecking away at your local stuff and, you know, figuring out how to use the camera and how to do the editing, you know, and, work your way up to the art of flight. (laughs) I mean, that's how the hammer factor started. Uh, I called Weld one day and said, Hey, I'm starting a podcast. You, you want to be a host with me? He said, yeah. When do you want to record? And I said, well, let's, uh, let's see if we can do it today around three. He was like, all right. And then it started. (laughs) Yeah, man. Reminiscing about the hammer factor origins. And then you guys posted it. And I think I was probably like the first person to listen to it. And I was like, this is all my podcast casting dreams come true but like here's like seven things you're wrong about and, and well it's like you're in dude and i was like really like i don't know man i'm pretty pretty humbly i don't know if i really have anything to contribute to this okay this one's coming at us from jason jacoby uh, by way of youtube so we've got comments coming at us from youtube facebook and email here it is Yo, fellas, great show, even with the interference. Um, bought a shirt and stoked to see it's a collector's item. In Chile, they threw the brown claw on the Maipo for years, and it's called the upside-down brown claw because of the equator crossing. It's sort of like the description of cupping the balls. Well, with all that ramble, will there ever be a brown claw incorporated in the Hammer Factor logo on the next collector's edition t-shirt? I'm going to, Lewis, you're up. I don't know, man. I feel like, I feel like Demschitz may have kind of cornered the market on the brown claw apparel, but maybe, maybe when somebody designs us our Ryan Zinke supping t-shirt, <laughs> you could be brown clawing in the picture. Hammer factor is all encompassing. It seems like, you know, you got to incorporate it all. So here's, yeah, here's what I want for the shirt. I want Ryan Zinke wearing a cowboy hat on a sub. Okay, hold up one second. Hold on. Tell, okay, so last episode, we had too much interference. I had to cut a whole lot of different topics out of that, out of that show. But we discussed the t-shirt and a possible t-shirt contest. So, Lewis, I'm going to have you, can you go ahead and fill our listeners in on that discussion? Okay. Have you, have you been? Have you been well hammered out the the addition the uh, hammered out this transaction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry about weld. Weld's on board. Don't worry about that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe that on our last episode, edited out, 
John Grace signed up John Weld to give away a free dry top to whoever successfully designs our next Hammer Factor t-shirt. So we're going to have a Hammer Factor t-shirt art contest that will end whenever we get a design that we like, but sooner the better. Here's the design that I want to see somebody create. And <laughs> this may not be the winning entry, but it might be the winning entry. The design that I want that is a picture of Ryan Zinke in a cowboy hat on a sup, brown clawing, and it just says, Zinke sups. <laughs> I see where you're going with that, Lewis, but I would, I would never wear that. And I don't, I don't think any of our listeners would ever oh. wear that shirt. But if that's what you want to submit, <laughs> go for it. Uh, but but regardless, oh, if you're going to put Zinke in a cowboy hat, riding this up, throwing a brown cloth <laughs> with a whatever, send us, your, send us your T-shirt designs. You could be in a new dry top um, and just in time for winter. So... Um, get some designs into us and, and Shane, let's move in. Let's, let's start with the 93 video and let's talk some freestyle. Uh, the, the, the first one, um, came about in a actually pretty hilarious, uh, way. And it's, it sort of speaks to the whole transition of what rodeo has done throughout this whole time. I was paddling down the Okoe, got to hell hole. And there were some of my friends were kind of out doing stuff. And somebody from the side says, Hey, you should stop and enter this competition. It's for the T- U.S. team trials. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went in and took a couple of rides, and uh, then we hung out for a little bit, and they go, guess what? You're on the U.S. team. You're going to be in Worlds. <laughs> so uh, to say that that speaks to the beginning of that whole freestyle era, the Worlds era is uh, is pretty uh, indicative of that beginning. Very, very, very grassroots and, um, you know, camping out at the Okoe and doing all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, and now, I mean, you know, there's teams, they've got their hotels, they've been training all year long and, you know, they got composite boats and all that. So it's, it's a giant transition in those whatever 20 plus years, 30 years. Oh boy. Now, was this kind of thing just happening in the U.S. at that time, or were there other groups in other countries, you know, getting that freestyle hustle going? Um, the, yeah, other, well, so yes, there were other countries putting together teams, and um, when they, uh, you know, they're all the big teams now, they all had, uh, they all had done selections. They, they had set it up this year in 93 that you had to select a team and um, the organization, I wasn't really involved. Obviously, I wasn't involved <laughs> in the organization if I paddled into team trials by accident. <laughs> but, um, yeah, all the teams had to bring in their own selection. And we, we had ours. I, it might have been a full year for hell. Um, I can't remember exactly. Um, and, and we had the very tight selection of seven people from the East Coast and seven people from the West Coast. So we had 14 team members. <laughs> Something like that. It was massive. If I remember, if I remember correctly, um, I definitely remember Risa being there and her name who ran the Okoe Rodeo. Uh, tragic. Um, but there, yeah, there was this kind of the the usual faces back then that ran the events on the Okoe. But again, you know, I was, I mean, I was just barely on the scene as far as 
paddling with that crew very much. I mean, the funny thing is like, for example, Woody and I paddled there together all the time and never paddled with each other ever, you know, and, and later on became partners, you know, in liquid logic. So I was definitely running in a different crowd and he was more associated with those guys that were putting on all the events and that kind of thing back then. In that era, when you were, when you were taking the response and, and turning that into a freestyle boat, did you, were you guys just shooting in the dark or did, did you know what you wanted? Like, how was that? How was that process? How, how did you go? How was it going from that to what it is now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know we definitely knew what we wanted. And um, like that first, uh, that first team trials, I was in, you know, what I had, which was a response. And it was before Dagger even had graphics, you know, they, they had stickers, they put on tiny little graphics that were on the boats. And um, so that's what I, all I did, you know, was a couple of big enders, you know, and that's what got me in there. Here, there was the whole crew, there was a whole crew that was down you know, it was the Bob McDonough, Mark Lyle, me, you know, Corin would show up sometimes. There was a, you know, there was a core crew where we called it, kind of called ourselves the trolls. We were hanging out under the bridge at Hellhole learning all this stuff. You know, we were, it was the beginning, the evolution of the, of the, you know, of more tricks, the cartwheel in particular, you know, we were all good at doing enders and doing pirouettes and that kind of thing. But, but the idea of linking one into the other was just starting to happen you know, in that, in those, in that 92 to 93 year. And we were trying to get, you know, trying to get the second end to link up and come back around. And then it started, it became, all right, we got to get the third. And then it just escalated, just went trying to get as many ends as you could, trying to keep the boat going. And so the designs in the beginning of that was 92, 93 was just trying to stay retentive. Be, be able to get an ender, land back in the hole, stay there, spin around, you know, and the guys, then the cool thing is out West, they were doing the same thing and they, they'd started it earlier than we had, but we were trying to link up the second, second and third end. And there was a, that tight little nucleus of, you know, Mark Lyle, self and some other folks, uh, Doug Wellman, there's a whole little crew, Roxanne and Susan Gentry. We were all working on getting those cartwheels going and we were all down there at the same time and we were all, you know, it was it was a really cool synergy to be down there under the bridge and you knew you were pushing, always pushing and um, trying to get the next end, trying to stay retentive, you know, trying to do the big ender off the top wave and land in the hole. So that 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 energy right then was really cool and we were all pushing each other a lot. Mark Lyle would stay down at Hellhole and he'd have a bottle of ibuprofen and he'd paddle all day long <laughs> down there trying to figure stuff out. I remember, yeah, I remember in DC, you know, Andy Bridge who ran Valley Mill Boats and later went to work for Dagger and then from there to Warner, he made that, that composite, I guess, prototype for what became the transition. Although mm -hmm. I think that that composite one was actually a little bit more like the RPM. Yeah. But, you know, those guys were building that boat up in, you know, the Valley Bill Boats shop up in, in Maryland. And, and I just remember seeing those boats and being like, this is this is cool. You know, these guys got something figured out here because like, you know, at that point, the hurricane was kind of like pretty progressive boat. And, you know, one of the only maybe the only production boat that you could really like do pivot turns in. And just, you know, uh, well, we had the Sabre, but yeah. 
Yeah, it's Saber, the Reflex. I mean, I guess there were a few out there, but the <laughs> During that period of time, there was a there was a huge amount of energy and 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 money and just things going on in the sport and then it kind of at some point turned the corner and fizzled off. What can you speak to of that kind of boom bust cycle that was that that was starting and and now, you know, in hindsight happened? I mean, there was that transition time when there was a, a lot of money came in um, to the sponsorship and, um, you know, there was, you know, there were teams driving around in heavy trucks and um, we threw money into a limousine and driving that thing around and getting flown to events. And it, it was, it was big. And I, I, I mean, one of the downsides I think is actually some jealousy. Like, I think that a lot of people got pissed off because they could not get in there into the money. And so they were, you know, bad mouthing it or, you know, outside of the organization, they didn't understand the rules. They didn't understand, you know, the events and that kind of thing. And so then they felt, you know, cheated as well. Cause they, why, they these guys always win and they're making up the rules. And, and it, you know, that was, that's from the inside. It was, it was kind of weird to see that, that, that turn to, um, kind of some disillusionment with freestyle, but I also understood, you know, I mean, it was, there's a core group of folks that were winning all the events just like it is now, but they, we were also all organizing the events, you know, and, and putting them on, putting on that energy, you know, into making those events happen as well. You could also see um, so, how sort of like that progression would drive boat sales and make kayak companies feel like they had money to throw around. Right. It's like when like you're saying, if the boats, you know, from one year to the next, they're a foot shorter and everything is just like way better. You know, now you can battle the same, you know, I mean, how, you know, the remix has been an awesome kayak that's still totally viable for like 10 years. And then in 1993, yeah. if you were paddling a kayak from a year ago, you, you know, you probably feel like you're wasting your time. It's like, you got to like get a new boat. Like now. Back so far. Yeah. <clears throat> no. I think, I think LVM kind of killed rodeo too, man. It was like, you know, you can go hang out at, at, like go party at Animus River Days or you're like sitting there and then you see this video of these guys who are out like camping out and running the shit in California and you're like, wait a minute, like <laughs> I think these guys might have a better idea over here, you know? Whoa, 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 whoa. Now let's leave LVM out of this. Hey, you can't you can't fault LVM for showing people the light. But <laughs> in all seriousness, there was a time when there was just grumbling. I heard grumbling about the officiating and rule changes and things like that from the inside chain. Was that going on? Was it, or was that just people being disgruntled? How, how was that? Just like any officiating, just like any rules, just like any, you know, uh, there's, you know, there's, I think out and route out outright cheating was, was slim to none. Like, I really think everybody was trying to operate on the up and up and, you know, for sure. I think people were maybe biased, you know, and if you're judging and you like the guy that's in the hole, you know, you're, you know, as a friend or something like that, you may be slightly biased. I found that I was actually biased in the wrong direction. I judged my friends harder because I wanted them to do it right. (laughs) You know, but I don't think that, you know, there was conscious cheating, you know, but also, I mean, I was in my little world. So, who knows what I'm at? Who, who knows on that rules, you know, rules changed. And, and just like the boats were changing so fast, the rules had to change to match all that, you know? And, 
And, you know, you, you guys had Corin on, so you probably heard all the rules change <laughs> drama. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, but, you know, his classic one is his big protest, you know, and that there was a late rule change, but, you know, it was, there was a, a guy won the, junior competition in this freestyle event just before worlds he won it and all he had done was flat spin on babyface he he hadn't even he didn't even make it into the hole where the competition was based you know and he he slipped out of the hole went down to babyface and did flat spins and won the event and was like okay that's not going to work <laughs> so currently you know and it and it varies location to location but you know one of the big hot spots for freestyle kayaking for a long period of time was colorado you can go to Colorado now to the play parks and you can see two to one paddleboarders out there um, to kayakers. That's how it was this summer when I was out there anyway. What, Shane, you're, you're, you make kayaks and have been in this industry. What, what, what if anything, can bring that back, can, can, can get more, more, more people in those lines in the eddies? Oh, man. I mean, <sighs> Uh, maybe, uh, you guys talking more kindly about freestyle would help. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. And I also don't know, are they, I mean, I, I do think that there's more people paddling, paddling rivers and a little bit less, you know, focus on sitting around in the, you know, in the play park. But I, I mean, are those numbers down or are they just spread out over more play parks and more play spots? I, I don't, I, I actually don't have a good strong feel for that. Things out. We, we've sort of kept stayed out of playboating for a little while. Well, regardless of all that, and getting back to the competition down in Argentina, I was blown away with the athleticism. I mean, it, it, there was so much speed and the tricks going together. And someone who, myself, I know a decent amount about kayaks. I couldn't follow it. It was it's uh it was amazing, but you know, it, it was kind of hard for me to really follow. Yeah, it's, it's just so like, I feel like what it's so similar to what's happened with slalom where it's like, it's just become so separate than the rest of the sport that it's like, I just have no idea like what these guys are doing. Like, I would just be really interested to know like sort of what his, you know, like what does a week look like for him just like in the middle of the winter? Like how much is he paddling? Like, what is he, you know, what does training look like for him? Like, does he go creaking or is he just like, I don't know. I'd be interested to know. Okay, well, this looks like a good time to segue into our interview that was recorded after we recorded the podcast. So here is our interview with world champion Kim Fontany. After this interview, we will head back into rants and raves. All right, our special celebrity guest this week, Kim Fontany. Is that right? Fontane, yeah. All right, not bad. Kim Fontane uh, from Catalonia, Spain, the current freestyle world championship, world champion. How are you doing? Man, I'm just, uh, I'm still living in this cloud. Uh, let me stay up there for a few days. I'm very happy to have like accomplished this, this dream. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing. A dream come true. Well, congratulations uh, on the big win. Walk us through the... Uh... Before we get into some background on you, walk us through the event itself. Just kind of tell me when you arrived down there, how you were feeling through the heats, a little bit about the spot. I mean, it was the first World Championship uh, held in South America, so that was already a big novelty for us. Um, 
just a bit different this year because you need to adapt a little bit to the culture of the country, the driving down there, which is, which is a bit um, dodgy. And uh, I don't know, I think that uh, the climate also played a huge role there because it was so hot. We were in the middle of the of the desert. So um, I basically got there like three weeks before the, the comp started. I really wanted to make sure that I really knew the wave once the competition uh, kicked off. So uh, I think that that was one of the keys. The hole was really good. Uh, just a quick reminder to, to anyone who's listening right now. This was a hole competition, a hole event, unlike the, the last world championships in the Ottawa River. So um, things were a little bit different. I think the contenders were also a little bit different. So uh, yeah, just this this few novelties there. And uh, as I was saying, the spot was really good i mean it was world class all the tricks were possible it was um it was amazing it was really good um so everyone was expecting to uh see really good rides uh huge scores so um i mean the the atmosphere prior to the event was 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 great you know everyone was smiling people was chilling there in argentina it was it was so good nice and so uh, when you say that driving was a bit dodgy backing up what do you mean um well i mean it's one of these i don't know if you've been to uganda so it would be like halfway between i don't know europe and uganda so it was not as bad as uganda but um still you know you had to take care of you and take care for for the others you know yeah so uh, that's that's what i meant <laughs> no no i fully got you so looking at a spot like this as a competitor you know what's your style for setting up your ride? Are you going for your biggest tricks first? Are you warming up and getting a few things out of the way? Like, what's your style for, for putting up a big score, which you obviously did? Well, um, what I like to do is to uh, get to the final. Like, in any competition I go, I really want to be alive to compete until the very last day. So what I kind of did is to stay a little bit um, conservative, I would say, during prelims and uh, quarters and semis i was just making sure that i was landing solid rides but maybe not my best ride just because like it's so risky and the level is so high right now that a little bit of a mistake and and you're out you know so uh, i really wanted to make sure that i was uh, making it for the cut so um i don't know i just wanted to go step by step still had a uh, pretty good scores i was happy but um i don't know i don't know it's 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 risky as well because if you don't do very well from the very beginning the judges go like hmm maybe he's not doing as well as he should be doing so they they kind of i don't know but um I, this 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 was my my strategy and then my style i don't know if you've seen any rides or if people have has seen any rides i i think my style is about fluidity and like going really fast between the tricks I would say that this is what defines me. Maybe I don't go as big as other paddlers, but um, I go fast and I score lots of moves in 45 seconds. So that's that's a key for me. Give me some uh, give me some uh, perspectives on some of the athletes and some of the rounds. Who was who were you worried about, if anyone, and how was it shaping up through the through the weeks long comp? Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, the guy to beat was and it still is um dane jackson i mean he has won uh three world championships in a row one as a junior man and two as a senior so he was definitely the guy to beat because he's not only he he 
he not only won uh, the Worlds in Ottawa in a wave, he also had won here in in the U.S. in the hall. So he's um, like an all around. I would say he's the best paddler out there. So uh, we like I knew that he was the the guy to beat. And then you also had like a few of the Europeans who are paddling really well these days, especially the the guys from from England, the guys training in Nottingham. Those guys are really really strong right now. Um, maybe they have struggled in the past with the uh, pressure, but they they were like really switched on this time, and you you could tell that they would make it all all the way. Um, and then you know the Frenchies are always there, the Polish guys. I mean, like what was different about this world is that like so many people was ready to to take them back home, mm-hmm. you know. So that's that's what made those worlds exciting, in my opinion, because. The last ones, to be fair, like Dane stayed in the lead for almost all the competition. I think that Nick kind of um, won quarters. I'm not too sure, but uh, he was a long shot ahead. This time it was closer. Even in the preliminary rounds, quarters, it was slightly closer. He was in the in the lead for, for all the preliminary rounds, but um, you could tell that something could happen. Yeah, yeah, fully. I definitely noticed watching that there was a... The field was deeper, you know, like you yeah. typically you'll watch and you'll be like, ah, oh, it's going to be one of those two or three guys. But here it was like, ah, everybody had a shiny moment. Yeah. I mean, every time that we go to one of these competitions with, with the Spanish team, we also like do a, a bet on the people who is going to be in the final for, for each, um, for each category, for, for each class. And we didn't, we didn't go like, we didn't uh, manage to get a full, uh top five for any of the categories so this this time it was really really hard to to know who would make it who would not make it and like even for the top spot it was it was quite hard well obviously freestyle is i would say and correct me if i'm wrong your expertise in uh in the sport of kayaking um what is something that our listeners may not know about freestyle kayaking about freestyle kayaking i don't know depends on what listeners you've got they are like probably creek botters or um I, I mean it's a really technical sport and uh i think that the what the people kind of don't understand is that it has evolved in the last few years it used to be it used to be something for really technical parlors to like show off i would say in the past the kind of competitions that they were like um holding it was not about um i don't know in my opinion it has gotten way more i would not say professional but you know like it kind of started to i don't know how to say it it took that way that i don't know i don't know how to say it um would you say it's got would you say it's got more athletic it requires more athleticism. Yeah, I would say that you need to really focus on like training to be able to be on top. So it's it's definitely got more serious, and then I, I think that's why some people are like feeling like I don't know they are putting some dista- distance between freestyle uh, and themselves because first, I mean, kayaking has always been about having as much fun as you can, and uh, yeah. you know enjoying yourself and so on and i mean we still have fun but we we do train really hard for it and i think that's i don't know that's something that i don't know 
maybe that's why in the last few years, like some people is a bit skeptical about this uh, this this way that Crystal has taken. I don't know. I don't know. This is the feeling that I get as an athlete and being in the in the freestyle scene. You know. Well, I think as long as you're stoked, in the end, that's all that matters. Um, what other kind of pa- uh, of styles of paddling do you do? After when I was preparing for this interview, um, I looked, and on your Facebook page, you got a shot of you dropping into a big wave. What what other kinds of paddling do you do, and where do you, where do you go? I mean, I I don't consider myself to be a freestyler or like a creek boater. I'm just like a kayaker, and I like all the different different disciplines involved with kayaking. I'm I'm a huge fan of creaking. Uh, I love big waves. Uh, to be honest, I think that there's nothing like big wave kayaking is the most fun that you can have out there. Um, the problem is that here in Europe, uh, we have short seasons for creaking. We don't have that many big waves, so um, most of the time I would be, it would probably be classified as a rat hole. <laughs> you know, I, I am training in holes yeah, all day long. Yeah. This, this, this is the only thing that we have to be, to be fair. I, I honestly prefer to be in Uganda, you know, or Canada, riding those big waves. But man, I'm not a professional. I am uh, studying at the same time as I'm, as I'm like uh, kayaking. Uh, as I was telling you before, I've been uh, studying a master in sport management in the UK. And well, I mean, once you're done with studying, you go to the closest place you've got or the place where there is water. And normally and unluckily, this is probably going to be a white water park with like tiny features. I mean, it's still fun and it's what we can do. I would I would I would rather be, you know, shredding those big waves on the on northern Quebec or uh, in Uganda all year long, but um, I can do that during my vacations. The rest of the time is um, rat hole. Yeah, no, I hear, I hear <laughs> you. You got to do what you got to do. Um, tell me about the boats. What was everybody paddling? Was that what, what kind of boat were you paddling? Like what materials yeah. and like you know just top ten? What was it? Was everybody in composites? How how did it look out there? Um, I mean, it's still fifty fifty in some categories. You saw lots of carbon, especially in the senior men. But for example, Tom Delay, one of the best uh, athletes I would say in this world, he won the the junior category. Um, he was in a plastic boat. And right now, I would say that the market is pretty much divided in like for two brands only. You know, there's um, Jackson Kayak, of course, uh, leading the market, and then there is this um, little brand from Southern France, which I am actually working for, Gigi Prod. Um, this guy only like only does carbon boats, and basically, what I'm doing for him is I uh, help him shaping. Like the boat, I just test those boats. I, I don't know. Uh, we've been working in this last shape for for a whole year, and I was the only one uh, paddling the the new shape, the the Gigi Halix two thousand and eighteen. And the idea behind it is that he wanted someone to prove that this boat worked really well, and uh, he wanted to uh, get a good result with that. And He's pretty stoked because he. I, I'm not sure if he. I think. I think that he had some confidence that I would do well, but probably he didn't. <laughs> think I, would, I would win. So um, he's really stoked, and um, I am as well because I've been. I've been working with for him for a while, and in the. I think it was in the semifinals of the K1 men, there were like seven of these boats in the semis, and it was only like three Jacksons. So it means that 
the whole freestyle community and especially the top powers are really liking those boats. So, um, I mean, I'm, I, I could not be more happy that people like the work that I'm doing with these guys. So how, that's, how do you spell that company and where can we find out more about it? Yes, yeah, Gigi. So it's G-U-I and G-U-I again and Prot, like P. O R D, and as I was say, uh, as I was telling you, it's um, it's all about carbon. It's uh, customized, and um, I don't know. To be to be honest, I'm I'm I feel really thankful that I'm working for this guy because he is kind of a a, magi a magician, you know. He built all his workshop himself, and all his work is handmade. So like every every boat that he does is like a piece of art, you know. It's like I don't know one of these katanas that um, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's really cool to be able to work for him. That is really cool. Well, cur well, currently, Kim, you're sitting on the top of the world. You're the world championship, world champion. But I'm sure it's not always been that way. Give me uh, tell, f fill in our listeners with a low point. That point when you were like, man, I gotta hang up the towel and get rid of this kayak and do something else with my life. <laughs> I mean, I'm still at this point probably because uh, it gets a little bit frustrating because you would like to get a living out of this sport and it's still hard. But I'm, I think that as most or as any paddler on earth, we are doing this because we, we love it and that, that what, that's what really counts. So um, I don't know, my lowest point maybe when I went to Worlds in 2013 in, uh, in the US, I didn't even make semis, I think that I... I didn't do well at all, and um, I really thought about quitting, you know, because it's quite a lot of effort and money. If you want to be in the top, you need to be traveling quite a lot all the time, and everything comes out of your pocket. So, um, I don't know, there was this slow point, but to be honest, I have always enjoyed, and it's not something that I need to, like, force myself on doing, you know? It's like, I go training because I love it, and... Um, as long as I love it, I will keep doing it. How about that aha moment when you knew you could be the world champion? When was there a period when you when you finally got that confidence? Um, I have to say I have been quite confident that one day I would make it there. Like I mean, I don't know. I started kayaking when I was nine, first of when I was twelve, and with the rest of the guys in my club, we always had that dream. And to be fair, I don't know, of course you're realistic and you see that like step by step you, you kind of get closer and closer. But maybe the time where, where I saw that it was possible, it was when, I don't know, I, I jumped from being a junior to being a, a senior. So I just, I, I was 18. And on that year I won the Europeans. And I think that that had never happened before, you know, that right. someone who like just like arrived to the senior category, like, won the Weavers. I have to say I was super lucky there. Like I was there was no way I was going to win. I, I got so lucky there and I and I and I did win. But um I probably it, it was probably there when I saw that maybe if I put a little bit more effort and that's actually why I decided to move from Spain to, to the UK. So I could like train almost every day and like get ready for this competition and uh, knowing that maybe it was my last chance because from now on I've finished my studies I need to get a job um, <laughs> I don't know how how things are going to like I don't know go for me in the next few few 
few years. I don't know if I'll have the time to, to continue training, but um, I don't know. It's done already, so um, I'm so happy for that. <laughs> what about What's the best advice you've ever received about, about paddling, about kayaking? If you if you could Best. give a little bit of advice to one aspiring paddler who's listening to this podcast, what what bit of advice would you give them? I would tell him to get rid of the if, you know, if I had done that, if I, I don't know. I think that, um, let me, let me, let me think how I'm, I mean, have no excuses, you know. I think that the most important thing for not not becoming a world champion, but but progressing with your kayaking is to have no excuses. Go out anytime you can. Get stoked when it rains. Go out there, explore. I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of freestyle, but the most exciting days here back home in Catalonia is it, it's when it rains. And when I go out and start to look for new new runs to to paddle with a creek boat, that's the most exciting days of of kayaking out there. And it's, I think, it's all about being able to get stoked about kayaking and like find motivation all the time. I mean, you can do so many things with kayaking. You can do creek boating. You can surf waves in the sea. You can freestyle in holes, waves. I don't know. You can like even do sea kayaking if you want and like enjoy the views. I mean. It's such a rich sport that I mean I, I will never I will never get bored and I think that being able to fall in love with the sport over and over again is what you know will keep you progressing and will keep your fire burning for 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 this thing that we love. There you go. So don't make any excuses and keep the fire burning. I like that. Exactly. Um All right, what has you the most fired up these days? You just got done with the world championship. I'm sure you're. You know, you told me you were going to TV interviews and you got surpri- surprise family dinners I mean, and I, you're partying. <laughs> but what has you the most fired up these days? You know, I'm I'm a guy who like uh, I don't know how you how you tell it. I, I do not live in the clouds. I know that I don't know this is this is going to last a few days, but after that, I mean, I will be the same as ever, and this will not change me at all. Um, I'm a guy who really likes to set goals for himself, and one of those goals could be I don't know. In I think that no one has ever been able to become world champion in freestyle and uh, extreme kayaking. Like this is something that no one has achieved yet. So maybe one of the future objectives would be to train for for sick line for, for for from now on, and see if I can do well there. I mean. I'm feeling ready for a little bit of a change. I would like to explore a little bit more, you know, start to do some more expeditions, go to places that no no one has been before. Um, in the freestyle terrain as well, because these days we have been losing so many good spots, you know, the, the Zambezi is going to be floated real soon, same with the Nile. Um, so we, we, we need to find these new paradises that I'm sure that are hiding somewhere um, in the globe. And I don't know. I would be stoked to I don't know, get a team together and start exploring a little bit more. Okay, so most fired up about doing some exploration. Yeah. yeah super rad. Well, I know that you have some stuff going on there in Catalonia. Um, <laughs> do you have any departing thoughts or anything that you would uh, like to share um, before we uh, before we, we we finish our interview it, here? In that sense, I mean, I think it's quite 
easy to understand. Um, here in Catalonia, we want to be able to decide about our future. We have we want to have a referendum as they had in Scotland. We want to be able to say if we want to keep being part of Spain or not. And as we are Democrats and we love democracy, we will accept any of the like the result that we get. You know, the problem right now is that we are not getting allowed to vote. They are saying, no, you cannot vote, you cannot vote, you cannot decide about your future. And I think that this is not fair for us. I think that people should be able to decide, uh, have the freedom to to decide what, where is where is this um, country going? And I don't know. I, 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 we, we only want to vote. That's it. And we try to do that. Uh, the response of the Spanish government was to come with sticks, start hitting us. And I mean, the message that I would like to give is that, like this, like hitting people, you will never convince anyone. So um, I don't know. Let's get back to the table. Let's speak about it. Let's try to, I don't know, get to an agreement, but let people decide what they want to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is, does it look like there's going to be any kind of votes or any kind of change on the front there? Um, basically, what has happened now is half of our government was put in jail. Our president is now in uh, Brussels hiding because um, the Spanish government would, wants to put him in jail as well. And um, yeah. Uh, that's the situation right now. It's quite, um, I don't know, it's quite crazy, I would say, that there is people in jail for their political ideas in Europe in this in this century. Um, I hope that the Spanish government just, uh, I don't know, uh, reacts and goes back to the, to the democratic way. I think this is what they should do. Well, I think I heard a quote the other day that... Uh... You have to constantly maintain democracy, or it's a fra democracy can be very fragile. So yeah. you know, yeah, it, it, we're we're in a crazy yeah. time here in the states too. So oh my. In, a, in a way, I feel <laughs> you. I, I keep following it, and I I really don't believe what's going on. I'm sure that you guys will eventually put everything together, and uh, it's going to be fine for you. But um, I'm waiting for that change, guys. I hope that you that you make it happen. <laughs> Well, thank you for coming on the Hammer Factor, and uh, that was really good. Good insight there, Kim Fontani. Am I saying that right? Yes, yes, uh, you you are. All right, all Great. Right. All <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much, and uh, and and I hope to see you on the river someday. Hey, you, you're going to have to come and compete in the Green River Narrows race. Oh my God! I mean that that's that's on the wish list for sure. I will I will be coming with um. Actually, I'm pretty good friends with Rico. Yep. You know Eric, Eric the Gill. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe I don't know. I can I can join him next year and, and pop up. It would be amazing. Well, I organized that race, and if you decide to come over, I will put out the red carpet for you. So awesome, awesome. And thank we, you for that. And you will need to lead, lead me down because I mean it gets so tricky, right? There are so many lines. You really need to know where you're going, or you you might end in a in a bad place. So um. Maybe a couple, a couple of rounds with you before before the event. That would be good. Oh yeah, you should come over for at least a week before ten days. That's what that's what Eric does every year. He comes over for ten days okay. before. So that's that's a good well, way to get there. I mean, that's those boats are so long for me. I'm not sure how I, how I would do in them. I'm I don't know. I don't know. We'll need to see. Uh, you, Hopefully, I can. Make it. You, it, all, <laughs> you you'd figure it out quicker than you think. 
or hopefully. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the Hammer Factory, and you have a great day. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much. I'll see you in the river. Okay, that was our interview with the world champion, uh, Kim Fontany. Now let's get back to the show, and we will have Shane lead us off with our rants and raves. Yeah, I can do it, and I and I feel like since I am sitting in for uh, Mr. Weld that I have to do a rant. It seems mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, you guys made it more difficult because you've all you almost spoke about freestyle in a, almost uh, kind of a positive way. But I'm still, <laughs> still coming after you. <laughs> I got a rant about you guys talking crap about freestyle. <laughs> Especially considering that you, Geltman, and Mr. Weld chased sticks for how many years on class two whitewater? Way too many. <laughs> <laughs> and Mr. Grace wrestled around in a onesie. <laughs> how many years? Over and over and over. And you had a great time doing it. Freestyle is just excelling and pursuing that, you know, pursuing that control. And as I've always said, boat control is boat control and it works all over the river. You know, and if you gain it through freestyle or you gain it through creaking or slalom or whatever it is, it's a, it's a fun, uh, fun pursuit. And if you get good at it, you're, you know, you're a good boater. Now hold up here. Hold up. I, I got to defend myself a little bit. I don't bash on freestyle. I think it's a, a segment of this sport. I put on a freestyle competition myself, Shane, you have been a judge in that competition. So, and it's awesome. That's a very, very, very cool event. Okay. Well, following Shane's rant about the hammer factor on the hammer factor, Lewis, uh, you want to go into a rant or a ray for us? <laughs> oh man, that was deserved. Um, <laughs> um, man, are you guys familiar with this phenomenon of wrapping duct tape around the middle of your paddle as a means of having duct tape with you on the river? <laughs> do you guys do that? <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you're talking about, bringing duct tape with you. I, I typically put it around my water bottle. Or... See, that's correct. Okay. Bringing duct tape on the river, that's a good idea. And there's one place that's the wrong place to put it, where you're taking that weight, however small it is, and holding it out at arm's length for the entire day. Right? Like, like there, there's, I mean, you can put it, your spare duct tape literally anywhere and not have to be carrying that weight all day, except for the one place that people have decided is like the most convenient place to put it. How much duct tape are you taking? I mean, the more the better, right? Like you need duct tape. But like... <laughs> Like, like, why? Why would you put it in the one place that you have to hold it out in front of you for the entire day? I mean, it's like you pay all this money to have, like, a nice light paddle, you know? Like, if you're willing to <laughs> tolerate another ounce or another two ounces or whatever it might be, like, use that to make your paddle stronger. Don't, don't just add... Ah, no. <laughs> Stop doing that. Okay, we got it. Duly noted, don't put duct tape on your paddle. I, I think the worst part would be just getting the sticky stuff all over everybody else's paddle. I mean, wrap it around your helmet. I don't, you know, like <laughs> anything is right. Any place is better than on your paddle. But don't stop bringing duct tape. I don't want to deter people from that because that's important. Okay, it is settled. No duct tape on your paddle. 
Um, all right, I guess it's my turn. I have a rave, and this comes from catching up on the uh, Freestyle World Championships down in um, Argentina, and and it's kind of about a rave about boat manufacturers, and being that uh, Shane, and you kind of put the hammer factor on the spot there with your rant, I'm going to put you on the spot with my rave. So I love seeing all of the composite boats that were down at Argentina and just seeing the way they popped through the water and you could just really tell the difference. And I just, I really like that progression of materials, the thermoform, the thermoform stingers that we had out at the green race. Um, incredible to see that starting to happen. So Shane, when are we going to start seeing some thermoform boats? <laughs> uh, the thermoform boats we we uh, still can't keep them together, but we did set two uh, course records. Production, I don't know. I mean, we're we, the main thing we're working on is how to seam them together and make them hold up hold up to hard whitewater. And and you know, so we go round and round about what it what's the right boat for this. Obviously, it's great for the stinger for a race boat, you know. But to really be viable in production, we got to figure out the right boat and um and make it stand up to that. So that, that that's our goal, and it's. It's, it's definitely a long-term goal of trying to figure out how to seam them together so that we can then get into production, you know, with that material because it's awesome. Awesome indeed. Well, guys, we are at our time limit here, so I'm going to go ahead and end the show. Huge thanks to Shane Benedict for filling in for Mr. Weld. And, Lewis, once again, always a pleasure. Until next week, we love some viewer mail. I got to call it listener mail. And, uh, yeah, Hammer Factor out.